I had gone to this weird thing the year before, like a business camp. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Yeah. Weirdly, I met Bob Woodward there. <laughs> and I had breakfast with him, but I had no idea who he was. And I was like, why are you so important? Um, maybe you're the next tell-all book that's coming out. <laughs> Just say it. I'm Lisa Bodner. Welcome to Shiny Epi People. Today, my guest is Jonathan Jackson. Jonathan is the founder and executive director of the Community Access Recruitment and Engagement Research Center, or CARE, at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he's also an instructor in neurology at Harvard Medical School. His research center, CARE, seeks to improve health and clinical research access for all underserved and marginalized groups. John was just awarded a very prestigious NIH Director's Pioneer Award. Pioneer Awards support individual scientists of exceptional creativity who are proposing innovative, high-impact approaches to major challenges. They only give seven of these out a year, so this is a huge deal. And with Jonathan's great success, who better to come on the show and talk about failure? Failure is a major part of academia. Our papers are rejected, our grants aren't funded, our studies can't recruit participants, we get bad course evaluations, the committee we led produces a plan that fails. Once we're on step 15, we find a mistake we made in step one, and we have to start all over after months of work. Failure is universal. We just don't like talking about it. Melanie Steffen, who now is a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, wrote an article in Nature in 2010 about the benefits of making a CV full of failures. And if you bear with me, I'm going to read a few paragraphs from her article. She said, My CV does not reflect the bulk of my academic efforts. It does not mention the exams I failed, my unsuccessful PhD or fellowship applications, or the papers never accepted for publication. At conferences, I talk about the one project that worked, not about the many that failed. As scientists, we construct a narrative of success that renders our setbacks invisible both to ourselves and to others. Often, other scientists' careers seem to be a constant, streamlined series of triumphs. Therefore, whenever we experience an individual failure, we feel alone and dejected. Her recommendation is, quote, log every unsuccessful application, refuse grant proposal, and rejected paper. Don't dwell on it for hours. Just keep a running, up-to-date tally. If you dare and can afford to, make it public. It will be six times as long as your normal CV. It will probably be utterly depressing at first sight, but it will remind you of the missing truths, some of the essential parts of what it means to be a scientist, and it might inspire a colleague to shake off a rejection and start again. I love this idea, and of course it can extend way beyond our professional lives. My niece actually attends a high school where seniors bring their college rejection letters into school. And then at the lunch period, they take turns standing on a chair and joyfully saying what university rejected them. And then they put the rejection letter through a shredder and everyone cheers. So in this episode, John Jackson, successful academic, figuratively stands on a chair and announces his failures, and I hope that you are cheering right along with me. And last thing, John also tells a great story about feral hogs in Texas. He and I refer to a tweet that went viral after the most recent deadly shooting in El Paso. Someone on Twitter wrote that no one should need to own an assault rifle, and then a man replied with great sincerity, 
legit question for rural Americans. How do I kill the 30 to 50 feral hogs that run into my yard within three to five minutes while my small kids play? So if you want to hear the full story behind that awesome viral tweet, then listen to episode 149 of the podcast Reply All. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with John. John Jackson. That's me. What are you drinking? Oh, I have a story for you. Um, Ooh, tell me. So actually, I brought the bottle with me. This was a secret admirer gift that somebody left on my doorstep. There was a note attached that said, <laughs> uh, you are beautiful. You <gasps> are amazing. Keep it up. Uh, so I got this bottle of wine yeah. uh, the first week of June. So this isn't that somebody like has a crush on me. This is white guilt wine. So somebody <laughs> saw me walking down the street. They don't know any black people. And they're like, oh, it just must be such a tough time for that one black guy. Uh, and so instead of being like, hi, my name is so-and-so. I noticed that you've lived here for two years and I've never said hello. They looked around their kitchen. They're like, what, what do I give the black guy? Like, do <laughs> I, do I give him money? Like, are we doing reparations? Or is this is this like an alcohol reparation? And and I think I think that's what they settled on. You know, this is what Ta-Nehisi Coates was writing about when Between the World and Me and and the the case for reparations. So instead of my forty acres and a mule, I got a bottle of Apothic Red. Wow! And I'm going to need to Google like a third of the words you just said. <laughs> <laughs> So you know when I was in when I was in grad school, um, you know the 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 person I was dating, who actually is my daughter's mom, uh, we actually went through and like tried to figure out what we liked in various wines. So because we're both you know nerdy scientist types, we had like this Excel spreadsheet with like <laughs> all of these demographic like this kind of these different descriptors uh, for different kinds of wine, uh, and we basically threw together like a really shitty regression. Um, to figure out. Oh my gosh! This is yep, so dirty. Yep, yep. I'm outing myself. Uh, yeah, but yeah, we we it. put together a regression to kind of figure out, you know, what predicted our our tastes in wine, and uh, you know, we we included everything. It was like a kitchen sink approach. We were like, you know, seasonality. We were looking at like year. It was it was it was pretentious and ridiculous, and it obviously told us nothing. You should have done a power. <laughs> I should have done a power analysis. Well, I think I just heard a whole bunch of people turn off the podcast when, <laughs> when I said those words. So I need to say something here. All right. um, I've always viewed you as an important member of the Epi Twitter community. Oh, boy. Okay. In the course of my preparation and research that I do for mm -hmm. each guest, I learned that you do not have a degree in epidemiology. Oh, no. Nor, <laughs> nor do you have a degree in any domain of public health. I, I don't have a degree in epidemiology. I have a degree in cognitive neuroscience. Um, so I, I have no idea how I ended up here. Yeah. How did you stumble into the world of epidemiology? I feel like I'm the ultimate groupie. I'm I'm like a <laughs> wannabe epidemiologist. Yeah, okay. Of course epidemiologists are the coolest scientists and researchers. Like of yeah. why wouldn't you want to be an epidemiologist? But uh yeah, so I, I, I was sort of adopted 
by um, by, a, by a bunch of epi folks in the dementia space, and uh, forever will I stay. So, aside from your being a fraud, yeah, total. I wanted to talk about failure because uh-huh. failure, <laughs> failure, fraud are failures. Um, so, you know, as academics, we are constantly faced with failure, right? Like, oh yes, Absolutely. and we don't talk about it very much, but everybody experiences it all the time. Yeah. Um, and so when you were like, I would like to talk about oh. failure, I was like, that's so interesting <laughs> because nobody likes to talk about, it. I mean, I like to talk about it, but very few people like to talk about it. And so I was really excited that you're willing to be this open. Oh yeah. 100%. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be where I am today in terms of my career without failure. So tell me about some of your big and small failures. Maybe let's start with failures at work. I'm happy to share my own. So you're oh, not yeah, the no, only we can... failure in here. But I, yeah. I don't mind. I've got a long list of failures. Yeah, tell me about some of them. So, um, you know, I was, uh, I, I spent years doing my absolute best to get into one particular lab that is cutting edge. I started in 2010 uh, and and got nowhere, and including memorably once in 2013, they actually invited me to give like a like a talk, and the talk went so poorly, <laughs> it went so poorly that they had this quiet meeting um, about four weeks later, and they're like, uh, "Budget cuts, we can't actually offer you the position that we basically promised you." Oh, they promised you, but this was like a job talk. It was a job talk, and you fucked and- it up. I yes, I did. I poured my heart and soul into this job talk. Like I didn't, I, I wasn't lazy. I wasn't like thinking like that I could just waltz into this. I was like, I want to come into this space and I want to prove that I belong here. What happened was they started asking me uh, about my analysis pipeline for one specific aspect of it. I basically flubbed it, and then I kind of flubbed it in in a way that they knew it, and I knew it, and I knew that they knew it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So, you know, instead of kind of like the talk finishing with like this strong finish, um, it was kind of like, oh, okay, all right. Oh, well, like at the end, it was like, wah, wah. Like I didn't even get applause at the end of it. Oh, I'm so sorry. Like it was like kind of one of those wet farts that just <laughs> won't go away. And that was that was my oh. job talk for like my dream lab. Um, so, yeah, so uh, that was a really catastrophic failure. And, you know, I, I, it took me a long time to come back from that. Uh, I decided to start my own research center because this is the only way out that I could see. You know, I, I think that things are starting to turn around now, like three years later. Um, but those first three years were also punctuated by, by failure. Like I, I failed again and again as a leader because I you know, tried to lead by being like really cool and laid back. And and it turns out that doesn't work at all. Uh, it doesn't work as a parent and it doesn't work um, when you're, when you're running a small research center. Um, you know, I really feel like I let a lot of those people down who were working in my lab in those, in those first couple of years, um, because I was trying so hard to be the opposite of what I had experienced that I was bad in a completely new way. Inevitably, you come up against this, this question of what is, failure. You know, what does it mean to fail? 
Um, and in these cases, you know, these stories that I have where I have kind of failed in, in what is the traditional sense or what society defines. Um, but I, I found much more kind of a rich environment. Uh, I found better acceptance of myself. I found new career ideas through, you know, what most people would regard as failure. And, um, you know, it gets to the point where now I, I'm not quite sure what failure is, you know, and, and, and so when I use that term, it's when I didn't do the thing that I expected to do. Um, but I, now I recognize that it can, it can really take you to a completely different place that you would have never expected or anticipated. And sometimes that place is incredible and we're just too scared to, to try it. Um, but you know, I, I'm speaking as somebody who has put all of his chips in multiple times. It didn't go the way that I thought it would go and I'm doing okay. Parenthood is just one failure after the next. <laughs> Very much so. Like I, right? I, yes, I, I feel like I'm constantly failing uh, as a dad, I, like, especially in the age of, of COVID it's, it's just accelerated that feeling. This is where, I, I mean, I know that many of your guests have like parent confessionals. Here's my parent confessional. I hate other parents. Yes. Other parents are terrible. Yes. It's the worst part of being a parent is other parents. Tell like, me what you hate about other parents. Like the nonstop judgment. And you know what? I'm a guy. Like, so I see like 4% of it. They make you feel so small because for some reason, some group of parents decided somewhere that there's only a limited number of shiny points. And if you get one, that that means that it, it has to take one away from them. And so I, I'm, I'm one of those people who like stays way far away from like the PTA and the PTO. I'm the parent who at the soccer game, there's like, you know, the parents who sit together and I'm like yes. on the away team side. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to bring my laptop, not because I want to work, but because I want to ignore yes, you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I don't want to hear neighborhood drama. Nope. There's all sorts of COVID school district drama. Oh Did you listen to the school board meeting last night? I'm like, nope. Yeah. But, you know, during the time of COVID, I mean, I really like being a dad, but oh my God. It's too you, much. You get like zero seconds off. And, yes. you know, you can love something with your whole heart and your whole being, but that does not mean that you want to do it all the time. Ugh. And it's weird that we can't admit that. Like, why aren't we allowed to admit that? Totally. <laughs> like, they're around too much. Yeah. They're just, and they are they're sick of me too. Right. Like, this isn't. One way. No, I, I completely understand. And it's 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 one of those things where, you know, we, you know, as much as we we talk about not judging other parents, um, I, I think that we still have like this low level judgment of ourselves. I, I know I'm speaking as a dad where the bar is like maybe a millimeter off the floor here. Um, <laughs> right. But, you know, th that sense of, of trying to have an identity outside of being a parent is is one of those things where it's so necessary and it's so taboo that I think many people can't even name the shame that they mm -hmm. feel around wanting to have an identity outside of their kids. Yeah. And you know, the more of that that we can have in the world, I think the better this world will be. I think so much of the the sadness and the violence that we have is this redirected, misdirected uh, trauma that we've inflicted on ourselves over you know these standards that are completely impossible.
I, I grew up in a very small town called Ben Wheeler, Texas. When I was growing up there, there was literally only um, two gas stations, uh, a post office, and the Roundup Cafe. They actually have um, a festival to the local wildlife in Ben Wheeler. Uh, and because Ben Wheeler is located in rural East Texas, local wildlife is feral hogs. Nice. Feral hogs outnumber people like maybe 20 or 40 to 1. Um, they're everywhere. The feral hogs, you remember yes. when there was like one of the many shootings and this guy was like something about like he needed to keep his guns. Because <laughs> what do I do about the 40 to 60 feral hogs in my, yeah, I remember that tweet. Uh, because I remember reading it and I was like, oh, yeah, that is a huge problem. <laughs> I mean, because I know everyone else reacted and was like, what the fuck? Right. But no, it's, it really is. It really is like a huge problem. Uh, and so I've actually been caught in like um, like a, a feral hog stampede twice in, <gasps> my life in Ben Wheeler, Texas. It is terrifying. Let me tell you. I noticed that there was something like right next to me. And then what I saw was like the grass it was like out of like the Jurassic Park movies, like rustling all around <gasps> me. And there were like easily 40 to 50 feral hogs, just like the tweet. 40 to 50? Yeah, it was, it was, they were, they were hidden in the grass. I couldn't see them, you know, and they're just, they're just going. They're like hundreds of pounds of like pure muscle. It's like you have no defense and they have like these, some of them have like these tusks and, you know, it looks like a really dangerous version of Pumbaa from The Lion King. Minus the farting and giggling. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's less farting, I guess. Okay. No. I don't know about that. But maybe on the giggling. Anyway, so, yeah, that, that's happened to me twice in my life. But, uh, yeah, so feral hogs, um, that is Ben Wheeler. I just need to say on the record that you've said that you've listened to the episodes and are trying to identify patterns in my fun questions, in order to anticipate what I'm going to ask you. And I need to just tell you that that is incredibly nerdy. Is is it? Yes, but that is what this podcast is about. So oh, we're okay. going to celebrate oh, it. Yes. All hey, right. nerd. Okay. Nerd. Um, Jonathan, what takes up too much of your time? I don't know. I, I it's it's Tuesday afternoon, so I feel like I'm saying like fucking meetings take up too much of my time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, okay. I feel like the every meeting is pointless. And I could just do what you want me to do in an email and mm -hmm. save the hour. I had a meeting yesterday that was scheduled for an hour. And it actually, you know, it was so efficiently run that it took 12 minutes. And it was the most amazing thing in my entire life. Um, but I think right now, meetings take up too much of my time. It means that I can't do work and I can't spend time with my family. And I can't mm -hmm. spend time, you know, with my own goddamn self. Mm -hmm. I don't do meetings. What 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 does that mean? It means maybe I have two a week. How do you do that? How do you not have meetings? Teach I me don't your know. ways. I don't have a big team. My data analyst is incredibly independent. She and I will touch base by phone. You know, I'm we're floored. like Zoom suck. We're not going to Zoom because I don't want to look at your face and I don't want to look <laughs> at my face. Like no, let's just talk about what we need to talk about. Yeah, I don't know. I just avoid them. <laughs> I also don't do a lot of like administrative leadership stuff. I feel like, you know, I, I've been doing, I'm, I'm running this research center, uh, but I don't want to do it forever. Like I've, I've told everybody, like after 10 years of doing this, I am out. 
And I just mm-hmm. want to be left alone in my computer, like with a computer and lots yeah. of data and just a chance to write. The people over time that I've learned who I want to collaborate with, they are people who also work like me, mm-hmm. who work efficiently, don't work a lot of hours, only meet when we need to meet. Um and also are totally fine with fucking canceling meetings. Like, you know what? I'm not feeling it today. Like, let's just not do this. Or like, you know what? I was supposed to have more stuff done. I don't. <laughs> let's just forget it. My God, I would love that. You know, most of my meetings are not from people within my center. The vast majority of my meetings are like outside of my group because they're people who realize that racism exists, you know, like in the last three months. And they're like, oh, we need Jonathan to solve all of our problems. So I, I have so many so many meetings and they're just a waste yeah. of time. Maybe you need to set a new boundary. I So I, 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 I'm sort of setting like a hard limit on my meetings, but I think what I need to do is I need to, I need to lower what that number is. Yes. Um, for sure. And, and I think I need to stick to that. And, you know, if people need to wait to meet with me, they just need to wait to meet with me. Favorite breakfast food. Ooh, uh, waffles that I make myself because everyone else's waffles are bullshit. <laughs> What's so fucking great about your waffles? I am incredible at making waffles. I'm really, I'm good with breakfast food in general. I'm, yeah. I'm very domestic. I, I like mm-hmm. cooking and cleaning and doing all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I like where I shine is breakfast. I can make incredible breakfast foods. Um, and uh, my favorite is is to make waffles. I, I really love, uh, right now I'm in love with this recipe of, of kind of yeasted waffles and so you make them overnight and you sit them in your fridge and then you let them sit on your counter for a little bit. And then you make them and they're so light and fluffy and they have like a little bit of that kind of bready, slightly beery yeastness, um, which kind of really balances well with like maple syrup and butter. Um, or what I like to do is I, I make my own caramel sauce to put on top. This is very unrelatable. So, <laughs> okay. What's the weirdest thing you did as a child? Ooh, okay. Uh, so I, I ha- my list has four entries on it. And so okay. do you want something that... <laughs> um, you made a list with four entries. So there, there are four okay. entries. And so I, I can give you something that is is sort of kind of, you know, cutesy and innocent, or I can give you something that is like really... Fucked up? It's like, 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 like fucked up. Yeah. It's it's your call. You, okay. All right. We're going to do the, we're going to do the fucked up thing. Okay. So like some of the other entries are, are, are kind of cutesy. Like when I was a kid, I used to eat leaves off of trees, <laughs> uh, which is true. Um, okay. Or, you know, I, I watched a lot of cartoons and I had this crazy fear of anvils dropping on my head. Of um, course. So, Bugs yeah. Bunny. Yeah. And so Road I was like, Wiley Coyote and Runner, Roadrunner and stuff like that. So I was re- genuinely afraid of like anvils falling on my head. Uh, but the one thing that I want to tell you about, uh, and this is something that I didn't know was fucked up until like yeah, love those five years ago. Um, so when I was in third grade, um, my my teacher, Mrs. Vukusic, uh, and I don't mind calling her out, um, whenever we had story time after recess, uh, she would always have one of the kids like massage her shoulders and <laughs> look on your face. <laughs> What? So, so she had somebody like rub her shoulders right, every right. day after recess with our hot little hands um, while she read stories to us in third grade. <laughs> um, and and so what happened was at first it was like, you know, rotating, like a different kid did it mm-hmm. every day. Um, but apparently I was really good at it. And <laughs> eventually I became 
the old oh no <laughs> that gave my teacher like shoulder massages <laughs> did you tell your parents no my, my parents legitimately don't know i i mean i don't think they listen to podcasts so they won't find out now but um but i didn't i didn't i didn't even know that this was like a messed up thing until no. not that long ago like <laughs> after trump was elected uh, yes and so I was telling yes. the story and somebody reacted the way that you reacted. And I was like, oh, this is not okay. It's not okay what happened. <laughs> you I, thought you were special. like, And she I, chose me. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you're in elementary school, all of those things matter. Like you want to be line leader. Totally. On the safety patrol. You want to raise the flag. Yeah. And, you know, I, for me, like I wanted to be the guy that rubbed my teacher's shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> What sport would be the funniest to add a mandatory amount of alcohol to? Curling. Um, so do I, I don't know if you know a lot about curling, but it's sort of like ice sweeping. Doing that while incredibly intoxicated um, adds a degree of difficulty that should be entertaining for the people participating as well as the people watching. Have you seen people do the beer mile? What is the beer mile? You run a mile, but at each lap, you have to drink a beer. I've known people who've done this. I have not done it myself, but people do it. And wait, there is a national championship. For a beer mile? Beer mile. When I was at uh, Rice, we had something called beer bike. Mm -hmm. It's a fairly similar concept. I would never want to do that while running. That sounds... I know, it's so gross. Like the last thing that you want when you run, especially if you're running a long distance, especially if it's like a hot day, like you don't want a beer... No, and it's like sloshing around in your uh, stomach. No, no. I, I yeah. mean, I, I hope there are like troughs for people to barf in. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of barfing. I, but I also know that people do this competitively and they train. Yeah. So so when I was in college um, you know, with this beer bike contest, which again is very similar to beer run, you, you – there was Beer mile. Beer mile. Sorry, beer mile. Um, there's training. And so – um, you know, if it was rainy or it was a bad track, we turned it into a beer run where you had to guzzle a beer and they teach you how to open your throat, yes. just let it pour through you. And then you have to sprint a third of a mile. It was, it was <laughs> horrible. It was really, really awful. Thank you for being on my podcast. This was so good to get to know you. I appreciate all your time. Well, thank you, Lisa. I had a great time as well. Have you ever met like a celebrity? I'm sure you have. No. You've never met like any? No? Like does Ken Rothman count as a celebrity? I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. Ken Rothman? Oh, right. You're not an epidemiologist. I don't know who that is. Oh. All right. Never mind.